Hey there, thanks for coming. Before we get started, just a few reminders. You can sign up for text alerts from me, Big Mama. You'll get insider text before anyone else with invitations to be a guest on the podcast. New episode releases, secret merch drops. Just text the word JOIN to 332-244-6262. Remember, you have to be at least 13 years old to join the text list. Have you already left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? No? What are you waiting for? Five-star reviews, especially with a comment, help the podcast to be found by other people. So do it now. Like, right now. Okay? Now. Hey, we're on the search for podcast guests. If you're a student, seventh grade or higher, who has ever seen, I don't know, some sus, moist behavior on Roblox or Discord, because, hey, who hasn't? Let us know. If we use your story in an episode, you'll get some merch. And don't worry, we'll never, ever, ever, ever use your real name or any other detail which might reveal your identity, because we're not idiots. You can either leave a voicemail at 332-244-6262 or email a voice memo to guests at bigmamashousepodcast.com. Thanks. This episode of Big Mama's House Podcast has been brought to you ad-free by our fans. If you would like to learn more about supporting this podcast and this topic, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Big Mama's House. Hey, welcome back to Big Mama's House Podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you all for just a quick little favor. Can you please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? It only takes a couple of clicks, and here's why. Almost every other podcast network uses Apple ratings, and your five-star review would make a huge difference to how we're ranked. You don't even have to use Apple Podcasts to leave a review. Thanks so much. Hi there. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7, Kids, Devices, and Mental Health. Increased device time equals diminished mental health. In this episode, we're going to explore the direct impact that increased device time has on mental health. Time is the only real human constant, the only currency we have, and collectively we waste it consistently. Even before COVID-19, many of us were overusing our devices, but the stay-at-home order has completely destroyed our basic human need for a time-based routine, and with no schedules, time spent on devices has skyrocketed. But what if it doesn't end there? We're going to review the data and studies centered on teens, which show clearly that high device time equals higher rates of depression and anxiety. And finally, we'll review tips and tricks for parents and educators. Plus, I'll tell you why I way prefer Dunkin' Donuts coffee to Starbucks coffee. I'm a bit of a militant introvert, and I've always worked from home in a mostly solitary way, which really suits my strengths and weaknesses. As a result of relentless hard work and even more uh, accidental good luck, I've been able to make and create my own daily schedule and choose work that I find fulfilling. But there's a cost to this stroke of fortune, isn't there always? In my case, I have no boss and no real deadlines. And in this sort of build-your-own-life life, you need a bottomless reserve of self-discipline and organization. 
My ability to crank out the work is only as strong as that day's sense of self-discipline. Plus, on the inside of my head, I hear the never-ending cage match between my anxiety goblins, where one congratulates my absolute genius and then promptly gets punched in the face by the other one who screams that the work is garbage and will always be garbage. Well, the only way that I've been able to manage both of these issues, the discipline and the performance anxiety, is to strictly and ruthlessly manage my time, which instantly solves the discipline issue. And since I have a daily time slot dedicated to self-loathing, the goblins calm down and wait their turn. Managing time is difficult for all of us, just on the average day. But then the pandemic came along and changed the fabric of our lives in ways that we never could have imagined. Routines, schedules, patterns of life have just blown up. Just take my business as an example. I make my living by writing and presenting at schools to students, parents, and educators. Who could have ever imagined that from one day to the next there just wasn't any more school? Just on a dime, that's it, no more school. Everything's been turned upside down. If six months ago, Americans had been asked who are the most essential people in society, would anyone have said the DoorDash delivery guy, the cashiers at the grocery store, or the truck drivers delivering food? Not a chance. And I'm not saying they're not essential, uh, they are. But six months ago, that list would have been topped by reality show celebrities, athletes, and politicians, and yet here we are. And although it might be hard for any of us to hear and accept, we're all expendable and nothing in life is guaranteed. We are all expendable. And that's true for every single job description. If sci-fi movies are predictive, human healthcare providers, doctors and nurses will be replaced by medical robots. Crimes will be solved when a suspect's memories are downloaded, rendering the entire criminal justice industry obsolete. And as far as education goes, we're already in the midst of a massive integration of technology into every K-12 classroom. Will national and state level departments of education try to replace teachers with robots? Forgive the cynical part of me for saying, yeah, they'll try as long as it's cheaper. Because somehow governments can never seem to sort out enough money for education. Money for lobbyists, special interests, definitely. But education, well, you know, we have to tighten our belts. Funny that. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here, but listen to what I'm saying. The single thing that is consistent and guaranteed in life is time. Chaucer said, time and tide wait for no man. Indeed. Just like the waves on the sand which come and go relentlessly whether you want them to or not, Minute after minute passes. Time is literally the only constant we all experience equally and the exact same way, all the way down to the lowest bug in the animal kingdom. Time is what provides a backbone and structure to life. Time is the only currency that matters. In the United States especially, we tend to hyper-focus on money. But unlike every other form of currency, money, power, guilt, Time cannot be saved or hoarded or stockpiled. It can't be stolen. And you can't change how you spend it or the pace at which you spend it. Time is ruthless and dispassionate. Time doesn't care about your success or your poverty or your terminal illness or your grief. The sun will still rise just as expected tomorrow. Time cannot be manipulated. Time is the only constant, the only resource we experience in the exact same set of ratios. 
60 seconds in a minute, 24 hours in a day, sun rising to sun setting. Like matter, time cannot be created or destroyed. And since it's impossible to create more, it's critical to focus on how we spend the time that we have. How we allocate these time expenses has a direct impact on every single aspect of our lives, not the least of which is our mental health, as we'll see in a little bit. But first, let's look at the typical time expenditure that goes unnoticed. The $4 cup of Starbucks coffee. Personally, I prefer Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which costs around half and incidentally doesn't taste like it was pumped out of the rectum of a burning howler monkey. So win-win. Assuming you have the $4 Starbucks coffee 20 days a month as you head into work, that's $80 a month, which financially is bananas. But let's forget about the dollars. I'm really more concerned about the amount of time it takes you to buy the Starbucks. Assuming only a three-minute travel detour each way on your way to work and an average seven-minute line wait, I checked, per visit, that comes to 13 minutes per day times 20 days per month, which is 260 minutes or 4.3 hours per month. Those are 260 minutes that you're never going to get back. They're gone. Am I telling you not to go to Starbucks? No, I don't care what you do. God bless. I'm not even saying that you should take those 260 monthly minutes and use them to some noble purpose by working at a food bank or driving for Meals on Wheels, although that would be an awesome use of anyone's time. And I'm not saying that every single activity we engage in needs to be productive. Your brain and your body need downtime too. But I am saying that we can't complain about our lives when we piss away blocks of time on meaningless activities. I am saying that although our successes and failures are based in part on random luck, as humans, we don't focus enough attention on the factors that we can control. I am saying that if time is the only currency, and I really do believe that it is, then shouldn't we Scrooge McDuck how we spend it? The Starbucks example is a comparatively insignificant slow leak of time when compared to the massive siphoning spent watching television or Netflix. And yes, I am including myself in that. Let's assume for the purposes of our exercise here that we don't just mindlessly channel surf and watch whatever garbage crosses our eyeballs. Let's assume that we purposely choose to watch programs which at a minimum are educational, entertaining, and don't chip away at the moral fabric of humanity. Which, by the way, instantly removes the real housewives of who gives a crap from your queue. Even when we subtract the hours spent on quality programming, we will still spend at least two hours per day in additional useless content consumption. And even with this very low estimate, that's 60 hours a month. That's 60 hours spent watching trash like Love Island or The Bachelor, a genre I like to call relentless pursuit of herpes. 60 hours a month is a part-time job. That's learning a second language. It's spending more time with the people we love. It's learning a new skill or just getting more sleep. But let's pause here for a moment and collect ourselves by doing a location check on where we are in my all-over-the-world line of reasoning. One, the pandemic and stay-at-home order has thrown a grenade at our critical need for routine and rhythm, which we absolutely have to have as humans, and for children this is particularly true. Two, Time is the only currency we have, and it's non-renewable. Three, we waste vats and vats of time, sometimes without thinking, like the Starbucks line, and sometimes when we know full well we're doing it, 
like 60 hours a month on useless content consumption. Now, here's where we get to add the cherry on the Sunday. And just like an 80s infomercial for Ginsu knives, this is the place I get to say, but wait, there's more. If you call in right now, we will take your wasted 60 hours a month and add a full set of diminished mental health. I have a hard time with, well, I think we can just end that statement right there. I have a hard time with a lot of things. I have a hard time watching the national morning shows without screaming at the television, particularly when it's this topic. I've appeared on a few of those shows, and though they may be well-intentioned, I can't and I won't do them anymore. Partly, it's this weirdo move towards combining news and entertainment, which has utterly perverted the landscape of fact to the point that we can only take our medicine of the facts piecemeal, each with a spoonful of sugar entertainment. They devote only 30 seconds to a critically important topic, and the end result is so diluted that it ends up doing more harm than good. It's gross. In terms of device use among children, I can't tell you how many times I've heard one of these national morning show reporters say something to the effect of, well, we just don't know what the effects of device use among children are, to which I just start screaming like a banshee, yeah, we do, we do know. You may not know, the rest of us know. There's no mystery, the jury's in, the determination has been made, there's no mystery. Here's what we know. We, as in the collective scientific knowledge base, we know that mental health is directly impacted by device time. The higher the device time, the worse the mental health impacts. We also know this to be true when we compare data of teens over a long span of time. A great resource for this topic is a researcher who I've already mentioned several times in other episodes. Her name is Jean Twenge, and she's a PhD and professor of psychology of San Diego State. She's written a fantastic book called iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. I thought my title was long. Twenge focuses this book on the I generation, or individuals born between 1995 and 2012, which translates into graduating from high school anywhere from 2012 to 2030. In addition to her own research, Twenge uses vats of other data, including several long-term longitudinal studies to illustrate that specific teen behaviors or opinions that we're seeing currently differ significantly to what has been observed in the past. For example, the Monitoring the Future survey from the University of Michigan, according to their website, quote, is an ongoing study of the behaviors, attitudes, and values of Americans from adolescence through adulthood. Each year, a total of approximately 50,000 8th, 10th, and 12th grade students are surveyed. The 12th graders were included since 1975, the 8th and 10th graders since 1991. That's a lot of data over a long time. So when combined with other longitudinal studies like the General Social Survey, the results clearly show that, for example, teens now are lonelier than ever. 31% more 8th and 10th graders felt lonely in 2015 versus 2011, versus 22% of 12th graders who felt lonelier in 2015 than in 2011. And if you heard my sexting episode, you can guess that I'm going to say that it's not surprising to me to see the more concerning data points show up at younger ages. That's a pattern I'm seeing across all of my internet safety uh, device use and app use data. In addition, 
8th to 12th graders are lonelier now than at any time since the survey began. I've also found some fascinating work on this topic being done by the Unlonely Project. You really need to look them up online. They say that widespread loneliness is the current public health crisis and that the health risks associated with loneliness and social isolation are comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and that loneliness increases mortality risk by up to 30%. They also say that, quote, internet and social media engagement exacerbate feelings of loneliness, depression, and anxiety. Twenge agrees and says that smartphones directly and indirectly increase loneliness by attempting, unsuccessfully, to replace in real life connection with its screen-based ineffective substitute. This issue of device use increasing loneliness has only been made so much worse by the pandemic. We're not allowed to be in each other's physical presence even if we wanted to be. Plus the lack of schedules and routines has created a weirdo, who cares what day or time it is, loosey-goosey environment where device use has increased dramatically among children and their parents. Triggering this weird vicious cycle of device use increases loneliness anyway, to stay at home means I'm lonely anyhow, to I'll spend more time on a device, and on and on and on. Here's a quick and dirty on what else we know to be true. A Pew Research study shows that the percentage of 12 to 17 year olds who reported having had a major depressive episode in the prior year spiked from 8% in 2007 to 13% in 2017. That comes to an increase from 2 million depressed kids in 2007 to 3.2 million depressed kids in a span of only 10 years. The Monitoring the Future survey also shows that specific mental health data points began to diminish consistently around the 2011-2012 mark when social media and device ownership was hitting its first large wave. In fact, there's a huge spike in the data right in that 2011-2012 span for the number of teens who said that they, quote, don't enjoy life, which is a question commonly asked to help identify depression. Interestingly, this spike is consistent across race, socioeconomics, and geography, but impacts girls more than boys. Why? Because girls tend to use social media much more than boys do. We also know for a fact that more time on social media equals higher rates of depression. Not surprisingly, 56% more teens experienced a major depressive episode in 2015 than in 2010. This rise is far more steep among girls. The rise in suicides has also followed that same timeline trajectory where suicide numbers had dropped in the 1990s. 46% more 15 to 19 year olds died by suicide in 2015 than in 2007, and two and a half times more 12 to 14 year olds killed themselves in 2015 versus 2007. Screen time has already been linked to diminished mental health by a large number of studies. So that means any screen time. By using the longitudinal studies, it's easy and obvious to see that these spikes in diminished mental health coincide with spikes in societal device ownership and the first big waves of social media use. On top of all that, we know that in real life, human connection increases happiness and lowers depression. You know what else increases happiness and lowers depression? Wait for it. Reading on paper. That's right, I said it. Reading on paper. So for all those schools that chose to get rid of their libraries and certified librarians, you should be ashamed of yourselves. And when did in real life human connection and reading on paper begin to diminish in mass? 
around the same time as the spike in device ownership and the first big waves of e-reader devices and apps. How about teens and sleep? That's always a big joke, right? That the high school kid doesn't get out of bed till noon, and that might be because he hasn't slept all night. Here's a passage from the second edition of my own book, The Boogeyman Exists and He's in Your Child's Back Pocket, and I'm reading from page uh, 45 and 46. Quote, Lack of sleep, in particular, can manifest in ways which would seem to point to a much larger or complex cause. Adolescents who get insufficient sleep and or poor quality of sleep are far more likely to engage in increased risk-taking behaviors, are positively related to delinquency because of the connection to lack of self-control. Interestingly, regardless of parenting practices, and adolescents who get insufficient sleep and or poor quality of sleep impact their own ability to learn, their own ability to pay attention, and their own ability to process emotional inputs. Going back to those long-term studies, we find that 57% more teens were sleep-deprived in 2015 versus 1991. And that number rose 22% just in the years between 2012 and 2015 during that initial spike in device ownership and social media use. Moreover, teens who read on paper are less likely to be sleep deprived than those who read on a screen. And teens who watch on televisions tend to be less likely to be sleep deprived than those who watch on devices. Note, these two data points are consistent across socioeconomics, gender, race, and geography. In the first part of this episode, I said that we're all expendable and life circumstances can change tomorrow as the pandemic has made abundantly clear. That fact isn't meant to be a downer or depressing. It's meant to be freeing. On the one hand, we all need to not take ourselves so seriously. On the other hand, given that time is the only real constant and currency, we each have it within our own power, outside of work hours, to choose how and where and with whom we spend that time. Those minutes and hours when strung together one after the other become even more precious when they occur in childhood. In November 2020, a Cincinnati Children's Hospital study used MRI technology to analyze the brains of preschoolers. And they found that screen time changed the physical brain itself and that higher screen use is linked to lower amounts of white matter development, which is this sticky fiber stuff that connects different parts of the brain to different parts of the brain, which allows the brain to make quicker connections and learn quicker and develop quicker, especially skills related to literacy and language. That same Cincinnati children's group of researchers did another study on eight to 12 year olds and found that brain connectivity dropped in research subjects as their time on screens increased. The more screen time, the less brain connectivity. Guess what increased brain connectivity? What is it? Reading on paper. Paper, that's right. The more the subject read on paper, the more their brain connectivity increased. During adolescence, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, that's the very front part of your brain, the part that regulates impulse control is still developing and won't be done developing until you're around 25 to 27 years old. Adam Leventhal, a psychologist at USC, says that because smartphones offer instant gratification to its users, adolescents who are exposed to smartphones during those active prefrontal cortex developing years 
could interfere with that child's ability to develop critical skills in the prefrontal cortex, which are meant to help the child do the very opposite, delay gratification, control impulse, engage in long-term planning, etc. The lack of these skills when seen in a child are often connected to a diagnosis of ADHD and can not only interrupt a child's ability to singularly focus on a thing right now, but can possibly interrupt the brain's development and learning how to focus it all in the future. When coupled with what we know about device time and mental health, plus what we already know about brain development in young children, that a young brain learns more quickly and is even more impacted by neuroplasticity, then it's not difficult to realize that high device time and kids and young brain development and mental health impact is an issue that we need to look at closely and ruthlessly because those minutes and hours can never be regained. What about general happiness? Teens who spend more time engaged in screen-based activities are less likely to be happy. And this is true across the board. All screen activities lead to unhappiness, but not in equal measure. Not surprisingly, social media is the worst. And the converse is also true, that teens who spend more time engaged in real life activities are more likely to be happy. These include sports or exercise, religious services, reading on paper, and even off-screen homework. The best of these for your happiness, as you might guess, is sports or exercise. What does happiness even mean? Like, how do you define that? Well, according to the work of Ryan and Dechi, while money can make you happy if your starting point lies within the lowest economic levels, the amount and duration of that happiness that's brought on by money is fleeting as the dollar amount grows, kind of like increasing your tolerance to any drug. The more you use it, the more you have, the more you spend, the more it takes to make you happy. Ryan and Dechi's work says that happiness comes from some personalized combination of these three factors. The first is freedom or autonomy, where you feel or you have the ability to control your own life. For some people, that means having a flexible schedule or being able to pick their projects or some other variable. Two, human connection. We need to be connected to other humans. Three, exercising your competence or using your skills, being able to use the skills and abilities we already have. I would call this engaging in creative pursuits. So let's go back to that list of ingredients for a happy life and consider it alongside device time. Excessive device time, regardless of how you choose to quantify it, that's up to you, disrupts all three of these conditions for happiness. You don't have freedom or autonomy over your own life if you're doing it for the gram or if you're paralyzed waiting to see how your latest post is received by some third party rando group of strangers who you mostly don't know. Secondly, although screen time can facilitate human connection, like making plans to get together through a text or even FaceTiming with grandma, screen time does not equal human connection and it cannot replace human connection. I have on several occasions taken phones away from my high school kid and friends because they were sitting in my living room not talking to each other and looking at their phones. Without their phones, they were so bored that they were forced to start baking cupcakes or paint or do something else. Third, in terms of exercising competence, being creative, or using your skills, excessive device time has a direct and massive impact on your ability to use and expand your skill set, unless your particular skill set is gaming, which requires a screen. And by the way, earlier I said 
that all on-screen activities make you less happy. But there's good news for gamers. Gaming is the least harmful to happiness. So given the choice of your child gaming for three hours straight or surfing social media on their phone for for three hours straight, it's not even a close call. Gaming wins every time. The next time you think about your child's mental health, remember the three factors contributing towards happiness, freedom, human connection, and using skills or creativity. Then think about what might be holding your child back in any of these areas, and I'll bet you a dollar that device use has something to do with it. You may remember reading Romeo and Juliet in school. After meeting and falling in love immediately, definitely a time saver, they decide that they're gonna meet up again the following morning. And Juliet, so in love and so unable to wait until sunrise, tells Romeo, "'Tis twenty years till then." Yeah, well, that's a lovely thought, Jules, but those minutes are actually gonna pass like any other minute, so calm down. But it does raise the issue of time not feeling the same. The whole time flies when you're having fun thing versus it feels like 20 years till I can see your face again. So what do we do with our time, with our children, especially when the stay-at-home order has made time seem meaningless? Going back to the Unlonely Project, their solution, and I believe this to be the single solution for positively impacting mental health issue, is intentional creativity. Reading on paper, writing on paper, drawing, dancing, singing, crafting, painting, anything creative. By the way, you don't have to do any of these things well. In addition, the Unlonely Project uses bibliotherapy to treat mental illness, which literally is using fiction and poetry to treat depression and anxiety like a medicine. My entire life I've been saying there isn't any problem in the world that can't be solved in a library, and I believe that to be true. And P.S. look for future episodes on my podcast on bibliotherapy. So here are just a couple of tips and tricks to use at home and in the classroom. Uh, If you're already a member of the Big Mama's House fan club on Patreon, when you go to download your cheat sheet, you're going to get the complete checklist created just for this uh, episode. So here's just a couple. Number one, how about you, mom or dad? How much time are you spending on your device? What's good for the goose, right? Parents are just as bad. They spend their whole lives taking selfies. They take pictures of their dinner. Nobody cares what you ate for dinner. No, nobody cares. Put your phone down. So if you're expecting your kids to behave in a different way than what you're modeling, that's not gonna work. Two, create zones in your home where devices are never allowed. For example, no phones in the kitchen ever. This includes mom and dad. Three, default to reading for pleasure on paper versus an e-reader wherever possible. Four, if your child's anxiety or behavior seems out of character, don't hesitate obviously to reach out to a mental health professional and also consider that the behavior you're observing could be a result of lack of quantity or quality of sleep. Buy a big jar of melatonin gummies, shove a couple in your kid's face, take the phone and all the devices out of the room and monitor their sleep for four or five days you may just find that you have a brand new kid at the end of that time. Five, there is zero reason that a preschooler should be doing anything on a device. And I'll be a little radical here and say not even to play games. The data is piling up, the evidence of neurological and physical changes to the brain. Why on earth would we risk it? 
Six, in classrooms and at home, force kids to do as much as possible on paper. If you need a grocery list, don't text it, make them write it. Same thing goes for schools. If there's an essay assignment, make them write all their draft versions out in longhand and make the final essay tight. Last, let your children and your students watch you work on your own skills and share your failures. This will be the biggest gift you can give them. Show them photos of the terrible duck you drew with too many wings or the inedible cupcakes you made. Let's turn mental health into an entire effort towards creativity. Well, that's our episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, parenting is hard. Be kind to yourself. This has been a Big Mama's House production, hosted by Jesse Weinberger. The outro music was written and mastered by Caleb Weinberger.